For those of us here who grew up in church and who went to Sunday school when they were kids, I wonder if you can remember learning the story of Samson when you were little. Or perhaps you went to school scripture at your uh, primary school and you learned about Samson there. Well, the story of Samson the Strong, it has to be one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. He's definitely the most famous judge in the book of Judges, isn't he? And you can understand why, can't you? We're fascinated by the action and adventure of the story. We're amazed by Samson's superhuman strength. And I don't know if you had this kind of thing when you were in Sunday school, but I did. Uh, We had kind of like different worksheets and colouring pages, and Samson would always be muscly without a shirt. That would just be the classic picture of Samson. Well, here you go. Here's a picture. And it's a game of spot the difference with Samson. And here he is looking muscly, pushing the temple pillars over. And so I wanted to start by playing a game, because this is the kind of thing we did when we were kids in church, of spot the difference. So, shout out, what are some of the differences that you can see? The sword. Yeah, the sword on the floor is facing a different way than the different ones. That was very good. That was quick. Stripes around the base of the pillar, gold on the bottom, none on the top. Sorry? The green belt. Where's the green belt? I can't see that. You must have better eyes than me. There's a few rocks falling on the right-hand pillar, on the top one, but then they're not there on the bottom one. The middle pillar in the background, very faded, yes. I think the crowds are bigger in the top one as well. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, I'll stop distracting you with that game now. I thought we'd play a game or spot the difference, spot the Samson difference, uh, because when you compare Samson to the other judges in the book, you actually realize Samson is different. There's differences between Samson and all the rest of the judges. Samson is not a military leader like the other judges who lead Israel into battle and secure the victory for them. Samson is not a settler of disputes. You'd be glad to know because he probably wouldn't be very good at it. But unlike the other judges who used to do that. Instead, Samson is this lone wolf, this renegade warrior who goes about fighting people on his, on his, of his own accord. He has supernatural physical strength. All these things are different when you compare them to the other judges. Samson is the last book in the book of Judges, and he gets four chapters, more than any other judge, dedicated to him. And so what we're going to look at, we won't have time to look at it all, but we'll look at chapter 14 in depth and skim the rest. So you ready? Let's go. The story of Samson starts with a good old-fashioned origin story. Everyone loves those. And the story starts with that same old refrain that we've heard in the book of Judges. So look at chapter 13, verse 1 with me. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. There it is again, that old refrain that keeps coming up. The Israelites turn against Yahweh their God, and so he sends in their enemies to punish them so that they would learn obedience. This time it's the Philistines who oppress them. And during this 40-year oppression, God sends an angel. He sends an angel to a man named Manoah and his wife from the tribe of Dan. You can read about it in chapter 13. Manoah and his wife, they are unable to conceive. 
But this angel says, you will conceive and you will give birth to a son. But this son will not be an ordinary man. Look at verse 5. The angel says, you must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. This boy was to be a Nazarite who did what God wanted him to do, achieved his purposes. Now, what's a Nazarite? A Nazarite was someone in the Old Testament who had made a special vow to God. They'd consecrated themselves to God for a period of time. But, did you notice the angel says, he'll be a Nazarite from birth. His whole life was to be consecrated, dedicated to God. Now, in uh, Numbers chapter 6, you can read about the Nazarite vow requirements, but here are the three basic things that were needed. They must not drink wine or beer, they must not cut their hair, and they must not go near or touch a dead body. These are the things that would cancel your Nazarite vow, and you would have to start again. They would, keep, they would have to keep themselves ceremonially, ceremonially clean and devoted to God. And avoid these things. And so God is promising that the Philistines who are oppressing them, well, they will see justice. There will be a man who will be raised up who will save his people from their oppression, this special boy to be born. Now, fast forward to the end of the chapter, and we see Samson is now a grown man. And the question is what kind of man will he be? And what will he do? Well, we find out very, very quickly. So come with me. Chapter 14, we'll focus here. Samson's wife from Timnah is the story. So we'll uh, come with me to verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Who knows what Samson was doing in Timnah? But straight away we see what Samson is all about. Women. Samson is a lustful man. And we'll keep seeing that throughout the chapters. Samson sees this Philistine woman. He goes back to his parents and demands, get her for me. How do his parents respond? Well, they object. They say, she's not an Israelite, Samson. God's people are not meant to intermarry with the nations around so that they will be led astray from worshipping Yahweh. Samson, don't do this. But Samson is stubborn. He refuses to take no for an answer. He refuses to listen to and honour his parents. End of verse 3. Samson told his father, again, get her for me because I want her. So already in the story, we start to get this picture of Samson, that he is a callous man, a self-centered man. He wants this woman for himself. He demands that it happens. His parents try to guide him. He completely ignores them and demands, barks commands at them, get her for me. I want her. But then comes this tricky verse. We get an insight into the bigger picture, God's sovereign will. Look at verse 4 with me. Now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. See what it's saying? 
saying that Samson's lust for this foreign, foreign woman, his lack of honor for his parents, is from the Lord. How can that be? The Philistines, they were oppressing and ruling over Israel. And so God had decided he would find a way to punish them for the sake of his people, to save them. And so just as he had promised, God would use this man, Samson, to bring about his justice and his salvation. And here we get the occasion for it to happen. So Samson and his parents, let's continue in the story, they, are, they go on the journey, they make the journey to Timnah, and they make arrangements for the marriage. But on the way, what happens? A crazy story. Look at verse 5. On the journey, Samson finds himself alone, and then out of nowhere, a lion comes at him, roaring, ready to tear him apart. Now, what would you do if you were in Samson's situation? You would run for your life, wouldn't you? Or you would accept your fate and just let nature take its course. Samson does neither of these. Look at verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord took control of him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. A strong, young, roaring, ferocious lion is nothing for Samson's supernatural strength. His God-given strength. He pulls the lion apart effortlessly. It's brutal. It's awful, isn't it? It's a gory little event. But what's it there for? Well, it's the first time that we've actually seen his supernatural strength. So it's there to show us this is the one that God will use. This is the one who has supernatural strength from him. He is the one God is raising up to save them from the Philistines. But the second reason is to show us Samson's character. You see, as a Nazarite, he's meant to keep himself from what? Unclean things. From unclean animals and dead bodies. And so here, Samson just begins to show the beginnings that he doesn't really care about his Nazarite status. He ritually defiles himself with this animal and then its dead body. And notice that he keeps it a secret. End of verse 6, he doesn't tell his parents because he knows he's done something dodgy. So already in the story, we start to see this tension. Samson is not a godly man, but God is using him for his purposes, enabling him to do these mighty things. Samson is a callous, brutal man, but God is using him. Now fast forward a little while, Samson and his parents have Uh, made the marriage arrangements. They've gone back home and now it's time to come for the actual wedding. Samson travels back to Timnah and he passes by the place where he killed the lion. And he stops. And we say, no, Samson, just keep walking. But look at verse 8. He left the road to see the lion's carcass. He wanders off the road intentionally going to see the lion. Why, Samson? You know you're not meant to go near a dead body. Maybe you wanted to check that it was still there so that his secret could be kept. Maybe he wanted to boast again in himself and think, geez, I'm great, look at this lion I killed. Maybe he just wanted to see something cool and gross. Whatever the reason, he finds more than he expects, doesn't he? 
he finds a beehive in the carcass of the lion. It's dripping with fresh, sweet honey. A precious thing for that time. Now what should Samson do at this point? He should leave it alone. An Israelite should not eat anything that's touched an unclean animal. Plus, he's a Nazarite. He shouldn't even go near the dead body. But what does he do? He thinks, snack time. Verse 9, he carelessly plunges his hand into the honey and then takes it out, eating it as he walks down the road with joy. Then when he sees his parents, he gives them some. And did you notice, he doesn't even tell them where it's from. And he makes them unclean too. He's careless. He's callous. He doesn't care about his godliness. But now verse 10 comes and it's finally time for the wedding. And Samson puts on a big wedding feast for seven days. And it seems that the Philistines were afraid of him because they assigned 30 men to accompany him. Perhaps his appearance was so fearsome, like in that picture before. Uh, And they thought, well, you need a small army to take down this guy if he uh, gets a bit violent. But Samson, well, he sees this as another opportunity for his selfishness. Look at verse 12. He says, let me tell you guys a riddle. Samson loves riddles. He says, if you can crack it before the end of the wedding feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. It's an expensive wager he's making. Clothing was not cheap. And these 30 men, they think, yep, we've got a good shot of that. Let's hear it, Samson. What's the riddle? Look at verse 14. Samson said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. It's a good little riddle, isn't it? And it's a coincidence, actually, that it rhymes in English, even though it's translated. Now, what's the answer to the riddle? Who is the eater or the strong? You can answer. The lion, the lion that he's recently killed. Now, what's the something to eat or the something sweet? The honey that he scooped out of the lion. Now, how do we know that? We just read it, didn't we? How on earth would the 30 Philistine men know the answer to this riddle? They couldn't. Samson's riddle is not a riddle, it's a cruel joke. It's a trick to take advantage of them, to rob them of their wealth of 30 sets of clothes. And so these 30 men, they try their best to work it out. Obviously, they can't. So what do they do? Well, they threaten Samson's new wife. Verse 15, they threaten to burn her to death if she doesn't get the answer out of Samson. So verse 16, Samson's wife turns on the tears. She cries and nags him for days and days until finally Samson is worn down and he gives in. He tells her the answer. She tells the 30 men and then the 30 men come at sunset just before the deadline and they say to Samson, verse 18, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They've got him. They've answered their riddle. They've answered Samson's riddle. And he then responds with another little rhyme. Look at the end of verse 18. If you hadn't plowed with my young cow, his wife, you wouldn't know my riddle now. 
Now, I don't know if it was offensive to call your wife a cow in those days, but it certainly sounds offensive to our ears, doesn't it? Samson is just not a nice character. And so the Philistines, well, they've now got the better of him. And Samson, he has to pay up. But he has a clever idea. Why, not, why buy 30 sets of clothes and waste all my money when I could do? Verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord took control of him. He went down to Ashkelon, a neighboring city, and killed 30 of their men. He stripped them and gave their clothes to, the one, to, the, to those who explained the riddle to him. In a rage, Samson returned to his father's house, and his wife was given to one of the men who had accompanied him. It's just almost laughable, isn't it? Samson is so callous, so brutal. Instead of paying his bet honestly, he murders and steals and then runs away and leaves his wife. Samson shows himself to be a callous and brutal man. He has so little regard for God's law. But remember, back in chapter 13, it was the Lord who raised up Samson. It was the Lord who planned for him to save the Israelites from the Philistines. And remember the beginning of the chapter, the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And just here in these verses, it's the Spirit of the Lord who comes upon him and enables him to go to Ashkelon. This is from Yahweh. Yahweh was using Samson to enact his justice on the Philistines for their wickedness, for their oppression. Of God's people. And this is what we see happening again and again in the story of Samson. Chapters 15 and 16 has more of Samson's wild escapades. You should go home and read them this week. They are a great read. And they continue to show us what kind of man Samson is and how God uses him. In chapter 15, we'll just summarize them. Uh, we see this feud between Samson and the Israel and the Philistines. They're to and fro of vengeance and retaliation. Listen to some of the things that Samson does. He catches 300 foxes, ties their tails together, sets them on fire, and then sets them loose in the grain fields of the Philistines. Everything is burnt up. And so not only is he lustful, malicious, vengeful, he's cruel to animals as well. The Philistines strike back, and so he takes revenge and rips a crowd of men into pieces, just like he did the lions. The Philistines strike back again, and they capture him. But while he's bound, what does he do? He snaps the ropes off. He picks up a donkey's jawbone, and then he kills a thousand of them. God's word is far from boring, isn't it? Then we get chapter 16. What does Samson do? He goes and sleeps with a Philistine prostitute in a Philistine city. And then on his way out, he rips the gate out and goes and throws it off a mountain just to show them that he's awesome or something. Later on, Samson marries Delilah, his second Philistine wife. Not an Israelite, another Philistine. The Philistines used Delilah to trap Samson into revealing the source of his strength, his uncut Nazarite hair. So what do they do? They lull him to sleep, or his wife does, 
and then they cut it off. He loses his strength, so they capture him, gouge out his eyes, and imprison him. And then they use him as entertainment in their drunken temple festival. And then Samson, at his lowest point, takes this one last act of vengeance. God strengthens Samson once more. He pushes the pillars of the temple down like you saw in that picture before. The whole building comes crashing down and kills about 3,000 Philistines. Samson too meets his tragic end. Aren't they just the most wild stories? Such crazy and riveting stories. They're confronting and strange and yet laughable all at the same time. But the same things keep coming out of the story. Samson is this callous and brutal and ungodly godly and selfish and lustful man. And Israel's sin is their spiral of sin just keeps going down and down and down. And this last judge is the worst of them all. There's nothing redeeming about his character or actions. But here's the thing. God was using him. God decides to use this man. And he decides to use his callous, brutal nature to bring about his justice and salvation. Justice against the Philistines, salvation for his people Israel. God raises him up for this purpose. And in the bigger picture, you see God is being faithful. Even though his people are fallen, he is keeping his promises to Abraham. He's looking after his descendants, even though they're a bunch of riffraff who don't deserve any of it. It's grace. This is the big lesson that we need to learn from the story of Samson. God uses all things, the good and the bad, the ungodly and the godly, for his purposes. To achieve what he wants in this world. Justice against human sin and salvation for his people. Our God is in control of the good and the bad. He plans and purposes both to achieve his ends, but he remains sinless, righteous, pure. It's beyond our understanding. It can be hard for us to come to terms with, but the God of this universe uses all things, good and bad, for his purposes, while remaining utterly righteous, never betraying his holy character, never doing wrong. Here in the book of Judges, that's what we see. God ordains and uses this callous and brutal man, Samson, to bring about his plans. Does that surprise you? It surprises me, but I don't think it should surprise us. Because it's not the only place in the Bible that this happens. And it's the very reason that we are saved in Christ. If God did not do this, we would be lost in sin. Because this is what God does whenever he saves his people. This is how God brings about the salvation of the world by using both the good and the bad. We could think of a thousand examples across the Bible, but here's just two. God planned and used 
the cruelty and stubbornness of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to do what? To bring about the exodus, to save his people from slavery in Egypt. God planned and used the pride and hatred of the Jewish leaders to do what? To bring about the death of our Lord for our sin. This is how the Apostle Peter puts it in Acts 2. Though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, it was God's will, you Jews used lawless people, the Romans, to nail him to a cross and kill him. You see what's going on? The greatest sin that was ever committed, the murder of the innocent source of life, That was God's plan for salvation. This is something that we, as God's people, need to accept. It's the truth of how God works in this world which he has made. God uses even the ungodly, even Samson, to bring about his justice and salvation. It's something that we must accept and even give God praise for. Because that kind of sovereign power and wisdom is worthy of praise, isn't it? And because when he does these things, he expresses his just and loving character as he governs the world. But also we should praise him because as his people, we know that when he does this work, he is working for our good. Don't ever forget Romans 8 says, we know that all things, good and bad, work together for the good of those who love God. We know that the good and the bad are planned and purposed by our God for us, his people, for our good, so that nothing he plans to do is actually for our eternal harm. Nothing can take us away from him. Nothing can exclude us from eternal life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He is working for our good, using the good and the bad. But, and we'll finish with this, that doesn't mean that we do whatever we want, does it? It doesn't mean that our sin is excused and we can say, I'm going to make these decisions and God will use them because he's God and that's what he does. It doesn't matter if I sin or not. It doesn't matter if I make mistakes. I don't have to make wise decisions because, well, God will even use my sin for his glory, won't he? So, oh well, don't worry about it. No. God may well use the things that we do that aren't good for his glory and purposes. He might turn them around for his good somehow. But it's not our job to say what is God's will And how he will bring about those plans. No, instead, what is our job? Our job is to simply be like Jesus. To be like the true and faithful leader of God's people. Not to be like Samson, the callous and brutal man. Our job is not to put ourselves first like Samson, but to serve like our Lord, laying down our lives for others. Our job is not to take revenge and retaliate like Samson, but like our Lord, to turn the other cheek. Like our Lord, the one who was the lamb led silently 
to his death. Our job is to choose godliness and leave it to God, the wise and sovereign king of all, to decide what he will use for his justice and salvation in the world. Because he will work out his justice and salvation, won't he? He did it through Samson as he brought justice on the Philistines and salvation to his people. Well, in the same way, God is at work today. God has been at work through all of history, most of all through our Lord Jesus, the one who brought justice and salvation together in the cross, the one who will bring full justice, perfect salvation, when he returns and makes all things right. On that day, we will praise our God for his work in this world, for using the good and the bad, the godly and the ungodly, for his good eternal purposes. Let's pray. God, our Father, we give you praise that you are the sovereign of all, the king in control of all things, ruler and creator and sustainer of this world. We praise you that you are bringing this world to your goal, to your ends to that wonderful day where every knee will bow to Jesus and confess him Lord, the day where you will judge sin righteously and you will save us by your grace. Father, help us in the meantime to know that you are at work, to accept that you use the good and the bad and to keep treating you as holy, just and righteous, walking as our Lord Jesus walked, rather than Samson. But Father, we thank you for his example to us, and we pray that you'd help us not to be like Samson, but to follow Jesus faithfully all the days of our life. And we pray in his name. Amen.